I wanted to add my uh, pastoral encouragement to you to, to think about those two opportunities that were presented this morning, the trip to Columbia and, and hosting a Basque student for a month this summer. Those are, those are uh, steps of faith, no doubt, things that, that can be uncomfortable and stretching and, and many other things, but, but things that are, are often instrumental in growth in faith in Christ. And so I just want to, want to really encourage you to, uh, to pray about those, to give sufficient thought and discernment to whether God might be leading you in that. And I was actually, I was really struck this week. I was sent a, a prayer email for the, the uh, town of Donostia in the Basque country. And I found out that we in Eureka have something in common with Donostia. Uh, both of our towns have uh, four evangelical churches. Of course, the difference is Eureka is about 5,000 people, and Donostia is 200,000 people. And so there's a need there. There's a great need, and I think the video talked about that as well, for the gospel to, to be there. And a great way for that is for these students that are coming here to Eureka to be able to not just hear the gospel, but see it, and experience it, and be intrigued by it, and then take that back. So I just, again, want to, want to encourage all of us to, at the very least, give sufficient prayer uh, to, to those two opportunities. Uh, I was thinking back uh, these past couple weeks about uh, Megan and I's time in college at Indiana Wesleyan University. While we were there, there was a, a student conduct policy that all students uh, had to sign upon enrollment. And there were various things in this policy, but one of them was that uh, we would refrain from watching R-rated movies while, uh, while a student at Indiana Wesleyan. Now, there were some R-rated movies over the years that, that had been approved after being examined by the appropriate authorities, whoever that ended up being. But uh, uh, it was interesting, during the spring semester of our freshman year, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ was, was set to be released in movie theaters. And, and that movie, uh, of course, it, uh, it was R-rated, and it was R-rated because it was pretty graphic uh, for the sole reason that it told the story of the crucifixion of Jesus and sought to be real about the pain and suffering that took place. And, and it really uh, kind of caused quite a stir on campus because here is this movie about Jesus that's being talked about, not just among Christians, but in popular culture, and we can't even go see it because we signed this document when we became a student there. And so, you know, enough students raised concern, a concern about it, and an, an exemption eventually was made. We, we were given the green light to go see this movie. And I remember the, that uh, when I went to see that movie in the theater, it, it coincided with, uh, in one of my classes that semester, we were doing a two-day fast together. And it just so happened that when I went to go see the movie, I was at the tail end of that two-day fast. So, so <laughs> it was an influential experience for me because here I was, a, a hungry college freshman, 
feeling a little sorry for myself, and I'm sure the smell of buttered popcorn in the theater didn't help the cause in that manner. But by the end of the movie, during which the suffering of Jesus had been pictured in, in graphic detail, I, I had a little more perspective on, on uh, how much I personally was truly suffering at that moment. I was hungry, yes, but truly suffering. I, I think after seeing that movie, movie I, didn't, I didn't complain even once more during the, the few remaining hours of that fast. There was just some good perspective there. And, and the reason I bring all that up is, is because when we hear the phrase, the passion of Jesus, or we talk about Passion Week, often our thoughts might go to, to that, to Jesus' crucifixion upon the cross. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. Even, even the English word passion comes from the Latin word that means suffering. So, so we are right to think about the great amount of suffering that Jesus endured on the cross during that, uh, that last week of his life, and not just on the cross, but the other suffering that he endured as well. But our English word passion ha- has gone, has a bit of, undergone a bit of a transformation. It, uh, it no longer simply refers to suffering, but, but it's more commonly used to describe strong emotions, doesn't it? Strong reactions. We think about passion in that way. And so what I want to do in the weeks between now and, and leading up to Easter is, is to combine those two understandings of the word passion as we look at the final days of Jesus' life. I've, I've titled the sermon series, The Passion of Jesus. And so over the next 10 weeks, we're going to journey together through this final week of Jesus' life, which is often called Passion Week. And, and as we do so, we're going to look at the events of that week, and we're going to, to focus on some of the strong emotions or, or the strong reactions that we see from Jesus. And I think as we do so, it will, it will allow us to ponder the things which Jesus desires. And, and in fact, the, the title of each sermon during this series will be Jesus Desires fill in the blank. So for this morning, Jesus desires true worship. We'll talk about that. My, my hope, my prayer for this series is, is that our knowledge of Jesus, our own passion for Jesus, and our passion for the things about which Jesus is passionate about, that those things will grow and those things will deepen during our time. So, so that's enough introduction for, for all of this. We're going to begin by looking at the first event of Passion Week, Jesus' entrance on Palm Sunday into the city of Jerusalem. So I would encourage you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. We'll be on page 826 in the Pew Bibles. During this series, we're going, to, we're going to follow the chronology given in Matthew's gospel. So we'll be primarily in Matthew's gospel, but, but because the events and the teachings from the last week of Jesus' life are recorded in the other three gospels as well, we're going to be referencing those gospels at times too. But as I said, we'll, we'll primarily be in Matthew, so I would encourage you to follow along with me in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the beginning of the story about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
So verse 1 says this, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. I'm going to stop right there for now. So, so as we look at the story about Jesus' triumphal entry, along with the following story about his visit to the temple, um, I want us to focus this morning on the concept of worship. Now, worship is, is one of those things that can be tricky to define, right? What, what, is it, what does it look like to be truly worshiping God? Or, or worshiping anything, for that matter. In, uh, in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar seemed to think that, that worship involved physically bowing down to someone or something. That's why he forced all those present to bow down to the idol he had created. Uh, when Moses called on Pharaoh to let the people go so that they may go and worship God, he used a Hebrew word that more literally meant serve God. Uh, when we refer to, uh, to our gathering this morning, we, we might talk about it as a worship service. We sing songs that we call songs of worship. So all of those descriptions seem to present worship in a different light. But, but even, even knowing those different understandings of worship, our, our, our question maybe isn't answered still. What, what does it look like to truly worship God? What are the things that God sees as worshipful of him? I think the events that took place on Palm Sunday, they don't give us an exhaustive answer to that question, but, but I think they are very helpful in beginning to answer that question what true worship looks like. The worship that Jesus both accepts and rejects upon his arrival into Jerusalem gives us indications of the true worship that he desires. So, so in, that, in the part that we've already read, in those first eight verses, we, we see examples of people worshiping Jesus by exalting him through their actions. So the day began in Bethpage, just to the east of the city of Jerusalem, just across the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem. Jesus sent two of his disciples into the city to secure for him a donkey colt. They're given directions to go, bring the colt, and if anyone raises a question, they just say, well, the Lord needs them. Now, now, Matthew doesn't give us any further details about how everything unfolded when those two disciples went to get the donkey. It leads me to think that Matthew himself, one of the 12 disciples, 
probably wasn't one of the two that went to get the donkey. Luke, however, in his gospel, informs us that the owners of the colt did indeed question the two disciples. So now Luke wasn't one of the disciples, but in the people that he interviewed for his gospel, maybe he interviewed one of those two that went, and he got that information about, about how the owners responded. But, but, but regardless of, of the identity of those two disciples, the owners of the colt had good reason to question why their animal was being untied and taken away. However, when they were told that it was for the Lord, that it was for Jesus, they let the colt go with the disciples. And, and in that act, we see the first glimpse of worship of God. The owners of the colt exalted Jesus, exalted God above themselves. Rather, rather than worry about their own well-being and how their cult being taken would impact them, they showed that God was exalted as most important in their life. They allowed this cult to be taken. So we get this act of worship from those owners, their exaltation of God. And then once the cult was taken to Jesus, further expressions of worship are seen. Both the disciples and, and then the crowds exalted God in their lives by offering their cloaks for his purposes. That might not seem like such a big deal today, to put a cloak on the back of a donkey for Jesus to sit on, or to put the cloak on the ground for the donkey to walk on. You know, it's, it's difficult to know the, the, uh, the durability of those cloaks, but I, it's probably safe to say it's not beneficial for the integrity of the cloaks for a colt with a rider on it to be walking on them, right? It can't be good for it. And, and it wasn't like people generally had closets full of clothes at that time. That, that, that wouldn't be the case. Clothing took on much greater value in that context due to the limited items that people often possessed. I mean, this is why in the Old Testament it talks about uh, when, when a cloak is taken as a pledge, it needs to be returned by nightfall. Right? It wouldn't be common for people to have additional cloaks. You probably had one. So it's a big deal for a person to take their probably only cloak and lay that down for Jesus to use, whether it's riding on it on the donkey or to have the donkey walk over it. That was a big deal. The people worshipped God and exalted him above themselves by sacrificing their very cloaks, probably their only cloaks, in order to show him honor. It, it was a physical sacrifice, but it was also a symbol of submission to an exalted king. And so you had this picture of worship taking place as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, people exalting him above themselves, above their own well-being, above their, their own comfort, their own preferences. So we get that at the, the, at the beginning part of this story. We get the, those pictures of worship. We also, 
and, and we know they're accepted, right? We know that those pictures of worship are accepted by Jesus, not rejected. And so because of that, we can say that that's, a, that's something to emulate, right? That's, a, that's something that we should consider as we are thinking about what true worship is. It's this, de- this desire to exalt God through both words and actions. Um, and, and I think, you, we, I talked about Nebuchadnezzar, I think he was on to something when he forced people to bow down as part of worship. Bowing down is a physical way of making ourselves lower in order to exalt someone, place someone or something higher than ourselves. It's to take a place of humility so that someone might be exalted above ourselves. Um, John the Baptist, I think, speaks about this uh, when he says that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. That's, that's what John's talking about, exalting Jesus above himself. True worship is exalting God above ourselves. So how do we do that? How do you, how do I do that in our daily lives? It's probably not loaning out a colt or putting our coat down on the ground. It's probably not quite like that. But in what practical ways do we worship God by exalting him? If someone watched us throughout the day, would it be clear that God holds the place of utmost importance in our lives? I think, I, think those are, I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. How do I exalt God in my daily life? Because Jesus desires true worship that exalts him to his rightful place. So the worship from the crowd continued as, as the story continued to unfold, as Jesus traveled that road to Jerusalem. So we saw worship take place through exaltation. Let's look now at verse 9 and see how it continues. It says that the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the crowds were proclaiming that Jesus was the prophesied son of David. They, they called out to him as one who could save them as one who could deliver them. But it's the reason that they are shouting Hosanna and calling Jesus the son of David that that I want to focus on this morning. And for that, we need to turn to John's gospel. In John chapter 12, in his account of the triumphal entry of Jesus, he shares with us the reason that the crowds were shouting these things when Jesus came into Jerusalem. So look with me at John chapter 12, uh, verse 17. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. 
So Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead just days before uh, his triumphal entry. And the location where it happened was a very short distance from Jerusalem. And what John tells us is that those who were present when Lazarus walked out of the tomb, those who saw what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead, they went back to Jerusalem and told everybody about what they had seen. Duh, right? I mean, of course. Why wouldn't you talk about that? Now, I, I'm sure news traveled a little slower then than it does now, but it went fast enough that by the time Jesus approached the city, the crowd was well aware of what had just taken place at Bethany, at the tomb of Lazarus. And so the shouts of Hosanna on the road to Jerusalem were in part a response to what Jesus had just done, those works, that, that work that he had just performed. They trusted that he really could save them because of the power that he had shown through Lazarus, through raising him from the dead. And when you think about it, many of the Psalms in the Bible, these great songs of worship to God, they, they are written in response to God's great works. So for example, Psalm 104 and Psalm 105, we see that so clearly in those Psalms. In 104, the writer speaks very poetically about God's great work in creation. He talks about stretching out the heavens and setting the earth on its foundations, raising the mountains and lowering valleys, bringing forth springs of water and bringing forth trees and, and making all the creatures, and then on top of it all, sustaining all of creation that he had just made. And, and in the middle of that psalm, the writer shouts aloud and says, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. And he looks around at everything that he sees and he marvels at God's works and he praises him for it. And, and then I think with purpose and intent, Psalm 105 follows 104. And, and 105 worships God for his work among his people. Talks about bringing them forth from a single man, Abraham. Saving them from famine through Joseph's position in Egypt. Uh, performing mighty plagues um, uh, before Pharaoh. Bringing them out of slavery, guiding them in the wilderness, feeding them, giving them water in the desert, making a covenant with them, giving them promised land, protecting them from their enemies. I mean, both Psalms look at the works of God and end then with the proclamation, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Our God is a God who's been at work from the very beginning. And we are blessed to be able to look back on his works. Both what is written in the Bible and what we've personally seen him do in our lives as well, or the lives of those around us. True worship of God is a response to his works. I mean, that, that's why we sing songs this morning, <laughs> proclaiming who God is and what he has done. You know, that's why my sermons come from biblical text. We're looking at what God has done or, or what he promises to do, his future works. It's why we do times of sharing personal mission moments. We want to proclaim what God has done, what he is doing in our lives, 
so that we can collectively worship in response to that. Remembering what God has done isn't just an exercise in memory. It is foundational to our worship. And so another question that that we ought to be asking ourselves is, am I doing things to help myself remember God's works? When I face difficulty, when I face suffering, do I have ways to remember what God has done and what he promises that he will do? Am I teaching God's works to the next generations? Do, Do my kids, do my grandkids know the top two or three ways that I've seen God work in my life. The, the more we are aware of, the more we focus upon God's works, the more we will be drawn into worship of him. It, we won't be able to help it. It's, it's just what happens. We'll just find ourselves worshiping him when we consider what a great God he is, looking at what he's done, what he is doing, what he promises to do. It is foundational to worship, worshiping God based upon his works. So in the first scene of Passion Week, Jesus is receiving worship. He's receiving worship that is exalting him to his proper place. He is receiving worship that is based on a recollection of things that he's done. And then we get to the next scene. We get to the temple. And and for as accepting as Jesus was of worship given to him by the owners of the donkey and the disciples and the crowds, the worship taking place in the temple was a, a bit more of a mixed bag, ironically enough. So look with me at verse 12. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So the scene when Jesus arrived at the temple was was one of busy activity. I mean, after all, that was the day on which the Passover lambs were purchased by the Passover pilgrims in order to observe the Passover feast later that week. That was the day that you were to buy them and take care of them and examine them before the Passover uh, feast. Other, other animals were, uh, were being bought and sold in the temple as well, animals required for sacrifices. Uh, in addition, there was the need to exchange foreign currency into the temple currency. Everybody coming from far away needed to do that. So in a way, the business of worship was in full swing in the temple. All of it that was being done was in support of the worship that is prescribed to take place there. The problem was that the business of worship crowded out actual worship, 
in the temple. So the buying, the selling that was taking place in the outer courts, those were areas reserved for Gentiles to be able to worship God. And no doubt the noise and the activity that was taking place in those outer courts surely made its way to the inner courts and would have been distracting from the worship that was taking place there. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know that we can say definitively that there was price gouging going on in the temple, um, but the fact that it all took place within the temple shows that the motives of the merchants were at least partly, if not primarily, uh, financial in nature. If, if true worship was the most important thing to them, at the very least, they would have conducted their business outside of the temple complex. And then furthermore, there were some incredible things happening in the temple upon the arrival of Jesus. The blind and the lame came to him and they found healing. I mean, what a great reason to worship Jesus, especially what we just talked about, <laughs> worshiping in response to his works. I mean, there was an opportunity for that to take place right in the temple. But instead of worshiping Jesus in response to the miraculous healings, the religious leaders showed that their motives, too, were, were displaced. They were incorrect. They were indignant when they saw Jesus healing in the temple. They were indignant when they heard the children continuing the worshipful proclamation from out in the streets, Hosanna to the Son of David. And then both, both Mark and Luke in their Gospels, they tell us that after this scene, the religious leaders sought to find a way to destroy Jesus. Not, not worshipful, is it? It's clear from this scene that, that while worship includes our actions, it is not only our actions. True worship of God includes both attitude and action. There was definitely worshipful activity taking place in the temple, worshipful actions, but there was also a lack of worshipful attitude. Um, I, I know I referenced the story of Ananias and Sapphira a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, integrity in our work, but that story also tells us so much about the importance of attitude in worship. <clears throat> It was an attitude of, of selfishness and, and perhaps pride that caused Ananias and Sapphira to lie to God about their financial gift. Uh, their action was one that outwardly appeared to be quite worshipful. I mean, after all, they sold land, brought much of the proceeds, and, and gave it to the apostles to be used to care for people in need. But because their attitude was not worshipful toward God, their worship was rejected. It was shown to be the forgery that it was. Now, now, we know how that story ended, right? Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead as the result of their lying to God. I'm not saying that the exact same thing is going to happen to you or me if our attitudes don't match up with our actions. God has every right to do that, but because of his mercy, typically does not respond to us in that way. Uh, the story in Acts chapter 5 took place at a very crucial time in the, in the 
in the infancy of the church. And many believe God's just judgment in that instance was intended to speak powerfully to the rest of the church, to point them in the right direction regarding their worship of God. So we don't need to fear the wrath of God upon us. Jesus has set us free from that. But we ought to consider the seriousness of our attitudes along with our actions in worship. Uh, In various places in the Old Testament, God told his people he didn't want their animal sacrifices. Even though he had set up a system that included the host, he said, I do not want your animal sacrifices. Why? Why did he say that? It's because their hearts weren't in them. They didn't have an attitude of worship that matched their actions of worship. We can, we can do lots of good, good Christian things in our lives. But if our attitude is out of alignment, then we aren't truly worshiping God. I mean, we can, we can come to church on Sunday morning and we can even serve while we're here. But, but if the rest of our week is, is focused on ourselves and is selfish in nature, then, then we ought to question if we are actually worshiping God on Sunday or, or any other day. <clears throat> now, as I, as I wrap up this point, I, I, I want to say that our, our attitudes, our motives have probably never been completely pure in our worship, right? Um, I can speak for myself, and I'm presuming to speak for all of us, too, that we never have absolutely pure motives. As people living in, in a fallen world still struggling to resist temptations of our old nature, I'm sure that we can't ever worship God with a completely pure attitude here. But that being said, we, we would do well to examine our primary attitude, wouldn't we? And, and I think we can do that by asking the question, how does Jesus view my, my worship, my acts of worship? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting a tickle in my throat. this one's gonna take a second (laughs) I may have even got a tear coming down on that one how does Jesus view my act of worship Would the one who knows the hearts of everyone, I mean, everyone, would he accept the worship that I'm giving to him? I mean, he knows my heart. How does he view that? <clears throat> now, our, our worship of God doesn't have to be overly complicated, right? It doesn't need to be an intricate ritual full of all these specific steps and procedures in order to, to give God worship that, that's pleasing to him. Um, things were a bit more structured under the Old Covenant, <clears throat> most, mostly to, to teach God's people about who he was, how he was working in the world. But the New Covenant doesn't contain those commands. And in fact, you think about the, the story with the Samaritan woman at the well, and uh, <clears throat> I'm going to get rid of this yet. Didn't you bail me out another time, too, with a cough drop? I know the feeling. You know the feeling. 
So with the, with the story of the Samaritan woman at, at the well, right, she, she wants to get into this theological debate with Jesus about the proper location to worship God. And what Jesus does is he redirects the conversation. He says what, what God really desires is people who worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not about the spot. Truly worshiping God means we exalt him above all. <coughs> it means that we reflect upon, we, we praise him for his works. We involve both our attitude and our actions in our worship of him. <clears throat> and the great thing about all of this is that our God is worthy of that kind of worship. He is most worthy. He's not some insecure ruler who, who forces people to worship him so his ego can be propped up. The more we grow in our understanding of God, the more we deepen our relationship with him, the more we will be drawn into exactly the kind of worship that God desires. It's not something that has to be forced. It'll be like Psalm 104 and, and 105 that we talked about. We'll see God's character. We'll see God's works as, as being so wonderful that we just can't help but exclaim, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's the kind of worship that Jesus truly desires. So that being said, let's stand together. <clears throat> come before our great God. <clears throat> God, as we stand here this morning, we are we're just in awe of you. We're in awe of who you are, how you work. You truly deserve our worship. Would you help us to be focused upon you as we worship you, God? We want to worship you in sincerity and in purity. We need you to guide us in that and to help us do it. So would you do that this morning? God, would you reveal to us if there are areas where, where worship is not pleasing to you? For whatever reason that might be, reveal that to us. Help us to, to repent of that. And God, above all, we, we thank you that you are worthy to be praised. You are the most worthy. And so it's why we are here, it's why we gather, it's why we sing, it's, it's why we do anything in worship of you. I pray that we would remember that in our lives, that that, that truth would be made known to those around us as well, that you are worthy to be praised. God, we give you praise, we give you worship. It's in your name we pray, amen.